Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. I'm James. I love working here. I love New Life because um, here at New Life, we like to keep the main thing the main thing. Main thing's Jesus Christ. So when we gather together as a group of people, church, you know, this whole Sunday morning business, we gather together underneath the name of Jesus Christ to celebrate what he's done and to give back to him the glory, honor, recognition, and the gratitude that he deserves, and then to receive from him uh, through worship and through the hearing of the word that what we need to be able to live lives that are honoring and glorifying to him, knowing that his grace goes with us. And so we get to come, we worship, we gather, and then we depart sent on mission as the church to be people who represent the main thing to the world, which is what I really love about church. And one of the things I appreciate about this church is that we've taken um, the first 30 weeks of this year to look at the entire narrative storyline of scripture from Genesis all the way onward. It's called the story and um, one of the things that we get to do this week is that we get to look at the character of a little guy named David. And if you're new to church, uh, this is the same David of David and Goliath fame. It's a story we'll get to in just a second. Um, but to understand a little bit more about David, it's oftentimes helpful to kind of get a sense for the context in which he lived. And if you were here last week, you heard that Pastor Al did a really masterful job explaining how the children of Israel, this nation that was chosen by God to be his people, they had made this choice. And the choice they made was essentially Essentially, God, we do not want you to be our king. We want a human king. And here's, here's why. This is so that we might be like all the other nations. We want to be just like everyone else. And if you know God's heart, you know that God establishes and he sets his people apart, not to be distinct and weird, but to be attractionally different. They live life by a different set of rules. So the people had abandoned the strategy, and um, God said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And the first guy up on the chopping block was a man named Saul. And Saul, he really looked the part. You can't fault anybody for wanting to get Saul in charge. He was tall, dark, and handsome, and uh, stood head and shoulders above all the rest of the people. And so when you looked at this guy, he looked like a born leader, and he looked everything on the outside. But the problem with Saul is that he only went skin deep. And when he got put into a position of leadership... He did not have the character and the strength of integrity and faithfulness, and the position broke him. And Saul cared more about the approval and the affirmation of his people than he did about obeying God. In fact, the Bible says here in um, 1 Samuel 13, Samuel describes it, and he says to Saul, he says, you've done foolishly. Saul, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul remains in office for a good deal of time after this, but there's a burning question in our minds, right? Who will be this prince that is a man after God's own heart. This is where we get to introduce to the character of David. And before we start telling his story, let's go ahead and pray, get into the text. Father, we thank you that you care deeply about your people and you have for all of eternity. God, we thank you that you have made a way for us to become your people through the work of Jesus Christ. We are very grateful 
Father, assist us now. Give us the grace to be able to hear from your word. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're invited here. We love you. We're grateful. In your name we pray. Amen. And I was studying about David. I was pretty shocked to find out that David is mentioned over a thousand times in Scripture, more than any other character. In fact, we have a more complex view of this man than any other biblical character. We read about him in the books of First and Second Samuel, and we read from him in the book of Psalms. The first half of the book of Psalms, most of those are written by David. So what we have in here, in fact, the volume of material is so immense regarding David, that what we decided to do is to break up his life into two weekends. So this weekend, I'll be looking at the early years of the life of David. He gets anointed king about the age of 16, but it won't be for another decade or more by the time he finally ascends to the throne. And then next weekend, Pastor Ryan Brown will be sharing about David's later years during the time in which he sits on the throne as monarch. So David's early years can be easily divided into about two separate sections. The first one is David's time as a popular hero. David experienced a great deal of fame in his early years, but shortly after that, his story turns and he becomes a political fugitive on the run for much of his life. So we'll examine both parts. And then at the end of that, what I want to do is try to take a step back and try to connect some things about the life of David to the life of Jesus because Jesus is really the hero Of the story. Now, remember that because King Saul had disobeyed God, God disqualified him from continuing as king over Israel. And so we need to have a new man that's going to take his place. And to do so, God talks to his servant, a man named Samuel, who was both a prophet and a kingmaker. And he tells Samuel, Samuel, I want you to go down to a little town called Bethlehem. And while you're in Bethlehem, you'll bump into a guy named Jesse. Jesse has a raft load of kids. Get them all in front of you, and I'm going to tell you which one is going to become king. And so he does. So Jesse brings in all of his kids. And, and Samuel, he suffers from this. Uh, he, he has a, he makes the same mistake. He finds the first oldest boy of Jesse, and he thinks, yeah, this guy, he looks the part, so he must be the guy. And so God comes in, and he says to Jesse, no, 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 no. When they came, he looked on Eliab, that's the firstborn, and he saw, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks to the heart. All right? So um, Eliab comes and goes, the next one, the next one, all the way down to the whole seven sons Nobody gets anointed to be king. And so Samuel turns back to Jesse the dad and says, Jesse, are all of your boys here? (laughs) Oh, sorry. Didn't know you meant everyone. Yeah, I do. He's the youngest. He's out. He's he's out. Um, We can get him. Samuel says, I will not sit down until that boy is brought before me. And so they send a messenger. And David, this youngest child of Jesse, is out. And he's a a shepherd, uh, which is as unglamorous as it sounds. And so um, here comes David, young, underappreciated, looked over, left behind, no good David. And when Samuel sees David, God speaks to him and says, this is the one. He's described in the Bible as being ruddy and having beautiful eyes and was handsome. Ruddy means he probably had red hair, so redheads unite. And God said... (laughs) Samuel anoints this young boy, David, with oil. And here's what happens next. I want to see how this is really important. This is 1 Samuel 16, 14. It says, the spirit of the Lord 
rushed upon David from that day forward. And the very next verse, watch the contrast, the very next verse, 1 Samuel 16, 15, and the spirit of the Lord, what? Departed from Saul. And a tormenting spirit from the Lord came and afflicted Saul. So Saul, was in, Saul the king, is in such distress because of this tormenting spirit that he asked for someone to come and play the lyre, which is a kind of ancient guitar, uh, in his palace so it would kind of calm his nerves. And one of his deputies actually happens to say, you know, I know just the man. This is what he says in 1 Samuel 16, 18. He says, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. It struck me as I was reading this that this is a really awesome life verse. Young people, pay attention to me especially, right? Notice how David's described here, right? Bible says that he is skillful in playing music. So, if you're a young person here today, my encouragement to you is put down the video game controller and pick up the guitar. In 10 years, you and your wife will thank you a great deal. See, because our culture is obsessed with cosmology, or excuse me, cosmetology. No. What am I thinking of? The makeup. Whatever it is you look like. Cosmology is the stars. Sorry about that. (laughs) Our culture is obsessed with that which is skin deep. Right, And we, do, we spend a great deal of money trying to make ourselves look better because in looking good, we find success. And I say, no, no, no. The biblical picture of what it means to have success is presented for us here in what David was. So he was a man who was well-rounded. He had a skill set that went beyond the average. So he pursued the music and the arts. What's next? He was a man of valor, which means what? He was courageous. He knew which fights were worth fighting, and he ran to them, not away from them, because he was a man of conviction, So he stood on his convictions and he fought for that which was good and right. He was prudent in speech. Prudent simply means you know what to say and more importantly, what not to say. Young people, I encourage you in all of your communications, especially your online ones, be prudent in what you say. The New Testament says, let everything you say be seasoned with grace. He was a man of good presence, which means he knew how to conduct himself in the company of grown-ups. He could stand up straight. He knew that he was there for a reason. He had confidence in who God had made him. And this is the most important part. And the Lord was with him. So not only are his hands skillful at playing, his feet would run to a good battle. His mouth would speak wise words. His head was about him. His heart was united to God. Friends, especially as you're coming into your own, look to every aspect of your personality. Submit it all to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And most importantly, look for the ways in which people can identify, is God with you? Continue to seek out the presence of God. This was David as a young man, 16, 17 years old. So a little while later, we get introduced to the perpetual bad guys in the story. See, the nation of Israel, uh, I'll give you a brief map here. So here's uh, the Mediterranean, and then there's Egypt. And Israel sits right about here. And there's a group of people called the Philistines, and they sat down here on the coast, and they were this really warlike people. They, they were so, they, these were like the guys that brought a gun to a knife fight. 
Um, they were really advanced militarily. They, had, they were way ahead of the game in terms of their ability to craft iron and steel into weapons. They had chariots. Nobody else in the region did. They were the big dogs on the block, and they had an ace up their sleeve in the form of this fellow named Goliath. Goliath was a giant. He was this big, mean man that was... He, was, he, just, he, he wasn't fair. He wasn't nice. Uh, he killed people, lots of people. And... What happened is that the Philistines decided to go to battle against the Israelites, and how it often happened in the ancient Near East is that they would choose a warrior, and that guy, that army's warrior would fight this army's champion, and whoever won in that hand-to-hand combat, then, then that was what decided the battle. And so um, the two sides are lined up on opposite sides of a valley, and for 40 days, Goliath would go down into the valley, and he would bellow up at the Israelites on the other side, and he would defy them to bring down a champion, a warrior that could defeat him. And he says, if, if he defeats me, then we Philistines will be your servants, but if I defeat him, well, you know where that's going. So it just so happened that while uh, Goliath is out there bellowing, uh, David happens to come to the front lines because he's sent there by his dad to go bring some bread and some cheese to his brothers who happen to be in the army. So here comes a little milkmaid, and he hears, he hears Goliath saying all of these nasty things about God's anointed army. And it really, man of valor, this is a fight that David can't back down from. So he starts making a fuss, and he ends up right before Saul the king, and Saul naturally is pretty skeptical about David's chances against this Goliath. And David's response is classic. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 16, or 1 Samuel 17. It says, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions, plural, and bears, plural, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He has not yet fought the battle, and yet he knows that it is God who will bring about the victory. Saul, you got to hand it to him, lets David go. His kingdom's on the line. He trusts it to this little boy. You guys know the rest of the story. David walks down there into the valley of Elah, and he's got with him five smooth stones and a shepherd's sling, which is a kind of leather strap. And after a brief interchange with Goliath, he whips that stone, bam, right into the forehead of this huge man. It sinks down into his skull, knocks the guy unconscious. He falls to the ground. David rushes upon him, grabs his sword, chops off his head, and he holds up the headed sword or the headed of Goliath. And the Israelite army lets out this great shout, and they rush down into the valley, and they rout the Philistines for miles and God brings about a great victory for his people that day and David is catapulted almost instantly to a position of national celebrity. He becomes a hero overnight. In fact, it was um, so much that uh, all the ladies started to sing songs about David. And here's what they said. This is 1 Samuel 18. It says, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. They sang, Saul has struck down his thousands. Oh, but David his ten thousands. Now, keep in mind, try to imagine what that feels like if you're king. And you're already insecure. 
Saul was very angry, and the same displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? The popular vote had shifted. It's now in David's favor. And the Bible says that Saul eyed David from that day on. And this is where David's fortunes begin to shift. He's no longer the popular hero. He's going to eventually become the political fugitive. Because what happens is that Saul, you remember that tormenting spirit? So David, he still serves Saul, right? He didn't get some big head and try to take over the kingdom right then and there. He goes back to serve Saul, playing the guitar for him in his court. And Saul would sit there, and he would be so overcome with rage, he would grab the spear that was sitting by his side, and he would throw it at David, trying to pin him to the wall. This happened not once, not twice, three different times. This spear-chucking incident happened to David, and he remained yet faithful to his boss. To add insult to injury, David goes out and he fights all of the battles for Saul. And he becomes commander of Israelite armies. And the Bible says that David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So not only do all of the people love David, Saul's own family begins to turn against him. Michael, who is David's daughter, falls in love with David. How could you not? So they get married, and so now her allegiance is towards David, not her dad. And then Saul's son, Jonathan, the crown prince, forges a friendship with David that is the stuff of legend. And you got to keep in mind the context that Jonathan's operating in. Here's a man who's torn between two worlds. He loves David deeply, but David is also the enemy of his father. And David is the man who will sit on the throne, not Jonathan. And Jonathan knows this, and in his humility and in his godliness, he chooses to love and support and protect David, even though it means that he will never have a chance to be king. I want to give you a couple of highlights for how the Bible describes their relationship. And 1 Samuel 18.1 says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. A chapter later says that um, after Saul was on the rampage trying to kill David, he speaks to Jonathan and to his son and to all of his servants that they should kill David. Now, dad, best friend. Dad says, kill your best friend. Not an easy place to be. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. It would come to pass that David would live the next decade or so on the run, and Jonathan remained back with his dad, and they would go out and fight battles together. And one time the Philistines were on the rampage again, and Jonathan dies along with Saul in battle. And when David hears of the death of his friend Jonathan, he composes this Remarkable lament. In 2 Samuel 1, he says, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high place. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. I think there's a crisis in masculinity today among men in our culture, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that it's very difficult for us to forge long-standing, lasting male friendships. And certainly a lot of people move and your careers take you in different places, and so it's not often that you can find someone who's just going to be with you for a very long period of time. But I want you to, if you're one of those men who are here today who feels like 
I've got my buddies, my chicken wing and beer buddies. I don't have a Jonathan. Can I encourage you to start praying that direction? Can I encourage you to start finding intentional ways in which you can really get involved in the lives? Men really don't do this, you know, small groups like sitting around with coffee telling about our feelings. That's like, you know, like, please don't, right? So, I don't, you know, however that looks for you, may I encourage you as men, look for your David, look for your Jonathan, look for a long-lasting friendship a person with whom you can be completely transparent, a person for whom you know that regardless of whatever you've done, he's still gonna love you and appreciate you and support you and pray for you and tell you to remain married and tell you to still keep loving your kids no matter how hard it gets. May I encourage you to do that and be that person for somebody else. David and Jonathan wept with each other because of the difficulty of life. Life is not easy and we need partners to go with us. So I encourage you, be a David or a Jonathan to someone else. All right, so let's recap so far. David is a teenager, and he busies himself by writing songs and playing the harp and tending his dad's sheep, and all of a sudden he gets called in from the field where he gets anointed king. And the very next thing he has to do is go back tending sheep. And he faithfully serves his dad until he gets called up in the presence of a king because the Lord is with him. And in the presence of a king, he gets the chance to win a tremendous battle. And that battle catapults him to a position of national popularity that also incites the anger and the jealousy of his boss. His boss is not only his boss, his king, his best friend's dad, it's also his father-in-law because Saul's daughter has now married Michael. And all of those people hate David. And yet David remains faithful and filled with integrity the entire time. However, Saul, his attacks on David get so bad because he tries to kill him in the palace, in the field, eventually in his own bed. He sends assassins to kill David while he's sleeping in his own house. And his wife has to concoct this um, like teddy bear under the blanket guise to get David out the window. And from that time on, he's on the run. The life of a fugitive with no one to turn to. In fact, because everybody still loves Saul, every place that David goes, somebody goes back and tells Saul, did you know that I saw David in such and such a place? And and Saul would come out and try to kill David. And it wasn't too much long after this that David, in an effort to just try to stay alive, he's sitting there in one of these kind of wilderness outposts. And the Bible says that everyone who is in distress, 1 Samuel 22, everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. There's a congregation for you, right? (laughs) And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So with this band of discontented 'er ne'er-do-wells, this motley crew, David moves constantly about the countryside one step ahead of of King Saul. Now, so what King Saul would do is that he would have spies all throughout the land. When they would see David, they would say, David, Saul, don't you know that he's in the wilderness of En Gedi? Don't you know that he's in the cave of Adullam? And every time he got solid intel on where David might be, Saul musters literally the entire Israelite army to go out and kill one man. So 3,000 warriors or more with Saul, their king and chief, would be coming towards David. This happened several different times. But the irony is, is that several of these times, David actually has the opportunity to kill Saul. I want you to read about one of them. This is um, 1 Samuel 24. 
It says, Then Saul took about 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Careful who you listen to. God never said this. Careful who you listen to. It sounds right, but it's not what God said. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the king. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. What? He's the man who's trying to kill you. And yet he remains the Lord's anointed. So David pursued, persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and he left the cave and he went on his way, never knew the difference. And afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Saul, of course, is stricken with grief. David, is that you, my boy? Yes, yes, it's me. David, you're more righteous than me. I'm sorry. I, I repent. I'll go back. We're good liar. It eventually gets so bad that David actually has to run to all places, the Philistines, the same people that he helped defeat. Saul was not to be trusted. Uh, He was a man who fell further and further into um, anguish and anxiety and depression. So David's time as an exile, as a political fugitive, as a man on the run, as a hunted man, lasts for over a decade. And the question has to be asked, why didn't God just allow David to whack a bad man and take his rightful place on the throne? But do you remember why Saul fell? Because he didn't have the character that the job required. Do you know what God did with David in his time on the run? He was forming in David the character that the future would require. Many of us here are going through highly troubling and very difficult times. May I encourage you that perhaps one of the reasons that God is bringing you through this valley of the shadow of death is so that you develop a character that you will need in the future. Please do not despise your tragedy and your suffering. David wept hard and he wept long. 
but David remained faithful to the one God who he knew holds the end of the story. David's story we'll finish it next week, ends with him becoming king, uniting the kingdom, establishing tremendous economic prosperity, um, political peace, military strength. It was the golden age of Israel. All of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will give you a land, I will make you a blessing, your people shall be great. Those come to pass under David's reign. He is the ideal human king. But his story doesn't end there. And the Bible is careful to tie his story pretty strongly to Jesus. Both of the, well, both Gospels, four Gospels, two of the four Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke, directly tie Jesus' lineage all the way back to the son of David. Both were born in Bethlehem. But the connections don't necessarily end there. I want to finish by showing you how David has become a type or a precursor to the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. You remember that David was a shepherd in his early years, which is an unglamorous, sweaty, stinky job. What it meant was is that he had to care for sheep who are not fun to take care of. He protected them. He provided for them. He defended them against enemy and harm. He provided places for them to rest. David, he wrote Psalm 23 because he saw a reflection of how he took care of his sheep is the same way that God takes care of him. Jesus, the Bible says in John chapter 10, is the great shepherd. Who is his flock? It's all of us. He is the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So what does that mean? How does Jesus function as a shepherd for us? He protects us. He provides for us. He defends us. He gives us places to rest. The ancient church father Augustine famously said something to the effect of, our souls are restless until they find our rest in thee. Friends, if you are full of anxiety this morning, there's a strong chance that you're missing how God can be your good shepherd who will lead and guide you and make you lie down in green pastures and he will restore your soul. David could do that for physical sheep. Jesus does that for his entire church. He is the good shepherd. I encourage you, submit to his leadership. Not only was David, he was a giant killer. He slayed Goliath, which was this tremendous victory that he had. He took care of an imminent threat to the people of Israel, but Jesus is the better giant killer. You know who he killed? Satan, sin, and death. Right, Because Jesus' work on the cross put to shame the power that has us, which is the fear of death. He says, now through the power of the resurrection, because I have died and have been brought back to life, now you through believing in me need not fear death. In fact, you will never die. Death is a transition from the life we share now to an eternal life in the presence of God our Father because Jesus is the better giant killer. If there's a giant in your life today, if you're afflicted or addicted, you can't beat him. Jesus can. Quit trying on your own. Depend on Jesus for whom the Bible says every power, every name, every authority is underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. There's nobody that beats our superhero. There's nobody that beats our Jesus Christ. He's the best giant killer, okay? So my encouragement to you is please allow Jesus to be your strength. David was a man who seems, so far I've painted this real idealistic picture of him. You know, he seems really nice. He seems faithful. Come back next week when you find out that David also slept with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, then kills her husband in order to cover the whole thing up. He was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect, but because he lived a lifestyle of repentance and forgiveness and humility. He was unjustly accused. David was a man of sorrows. 
You read the first, uh, I don't know, 70 chapters in the book of Psalms. Most of those are written by David. Most of those are what we call laments. David's weeping in most of them. His life was very hard during this time. Now, I believe in the victorious Christian life, but I also believe in pain. And you know who embodies both of those things perfectly? Jesus, who being the very son of God, comes to this earth, and the Bible says that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken and afflicted. You see, David understood what it would be like to be betrayed and his life hunted down. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest companions and he was abandoned by the same person who swore he would never, ever turn his back on Jesus. Jesus understands what it is to have a broken heart. You know, the worst pain that Jesus went through wasn't Peter, wasn't Judas. It was the fact that when he stood on the cross and he was nailed there, what, was, what Jesus was doing on the cross, why he had to die, was because in that moment, Jesus assumed upon his body every sin ever committed, past, present, or future, and he paid the penalty for that sin. You know what the penalty for sin is? The penalty for sin is the absence of the presence of God. Right? Remember, Genesis chapter 3, God says, the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall what? You shall die. What happened to Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit? They had to leave the presence of God in the garden. Spiritual death is the absence of the presence of God. Jesus experienced in that moment as he took on the entire sin of all of the world for all time, what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22 written by David. Because Jesus experienced what it was like to have God turn his back on him. And you know why he did that? So that we as his people would have the opportunity to stand face to face with God. That we would not have to bear the penalty for our sin. We would not have to experience the wrath of God against that which we so justly deserve. Jesus chose to pay it all. He was a man of sorrows, and yet through his sorrow and his suffering, he brings about a victory in which we still live today. Because when we stand before God, God does not see our sin. He sees the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have been given as a free act of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's a man of sorrows, but he lives in victory. So friends, continue to live in victory no matter your sorrows. I love that David had this band of outcasts that came to him. Frustrated, malcontents, nobody liked these guys. And you know what David did with this group? If you finish the story of David, you'll find out that that 400 grew to 600 and those guys became what are known as David's mighty men. And they became so skilled in battle. Uh, One of them, the Bible says, could... Um, hit a man at like 75 paces with a sling with his left hand, his off hand. These guys were so good. In fact, many of these guys killed giants just like David did. In fact, many of them surpassed David in warfare. Why? Because David took what God gave him and through his leadership development, developed in them the power to be a man of valor filled with the presence of God. You know what Jesus does? What was Jesus accused of? You eat with tax collectors and sinners. You know what Jesus did? He hugged prostitutes and lepers and he absorbed their pain until they became whole. He had a special fondness in his heart for the people who had no traction in society, people who had been kicked out, disadvantaged, marginalized, frustrated. He was a voice for the voiceless. And he says, if you're heart hurting and sorrowful, I will come and I will make you well. Friends, I don't know about your past, But I know that there's nothing in your past that the cross of Jesus Christ doesn't cover. 
and that the love of Jesus Christ doesn't passionately pursue you. He passionately pursues you because Ephesians says that those of us who are in Christ Jesus have been made blameless. Hear that. You have had accusation against you for things you have done in your past and Jesus says you are still blameless because of what I have done for you. When Jesus embraces you, he absorbs all of your pain and sin and hurt and he transfers into you life that the Father says, I love that child, I love that child, I love that child. Because Jesus knows what it's like to have dinner with people who are unlovable. He loves you. David was a king. He became a righteous king and his legacy endured for centuries. There was a descendant of the line of David on the throne for the next five centuries. And he ushered in a legacy of peace and prosperity unlike the Israelites ever knew. But David was a human king and he died. And his sons died. But Jesus is an eternal king. He's an eternal king whose kingdom is righteousness, justice, and peace. And it will have no end. Friends, we live not in the United States of America. We live in the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ is the king. And he is more powerful than any other force or name. And he will come again to set all things right. Justice comes in his hand. So friends, I encourage you, those who have been sinned against, those of you who have been hurt terribly, there is a righteous king who knows your case and he is coming again to set all things right because he is an eternal king and he's a good king and I want to live in his kingdom and I want to be part of what he has and I want to sit at this celebration banquet in which he joins all people from all nations, tribes, and tongues and we say, Jesus, thank you. Friends, I want to encourage you as our worship teams and our prayer teams come forward that he is a good king. That as David gives us a great example of what it's like to be a human king, Jesus gives us the ultimate example of what it's like to be the eternal king. I want to encourage you if you're here today and you have not submitted your life to the lordship, the kingship of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. I want to tell you, here's how you know you can be saved. We will pray what is known as the sinner's prayer, but it's not a sinner's prayer that gets you saved. The Bible says that it's faith in the grace of God working through Jesus Christ. How do you know you have faith? Well, it's kind of like posture. If I'm seated, I know at some point I chose to sit down. I may not remember when, but I know I'm here. So here's the posture I want you to take when it comes to Jesus. I want you to look at his nail-pierced hands and realize he did that for you because he loves you. And then I want you to fall whole life, wholeheartedly into the hands of your loving Savior. Quit depending upon your own intelligence, your own goodness, your own try-heartedness. Quit depending on anything else and see Jesus as your only hope. That way you can know you're saved because your posture towards Christ is, God, all I have is yours. So I want to lead all of us in a prayer to that effect, and especially if you're here and you have not yet assumed a posture of saying, Jesus, I want you to be my king, and I depend upon you for everything. I encourage you to pray. We'll all pray together, and we say, Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for your grace. 
thank you that we can lean into you. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I look to you as my only Savior and King. Thank you for your grace. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.